I don't understand this movie. We need the Fiasco Brothers. You mean... Yes! Dial B for Fiasco! Hello, and welcome to episode 40 of the Fiasco Brothers Watch a Movie. I'm Sean Frost. And I'm Tim Leonard. And this time out, our movie is the 1953 ripped from the headlines film The Hitchhiker. Written by Collier Young and Ida Lupino, based on an adaptation by Robert L. Joseph, and directed by Ida Lupino. Uh, Tim, why don't you tell our listeners what it's about? All right. Uh, as you said, it was based on a real criminal case, but we'll go more into the details of the actual crimes and the movie crimes a bit later. Two friends who are going out of town for a several-day fishing trip in Mexico pick up a hitchhiker, which was apparently something white people did post-World War II to be friendly to other white people. Then movies like this got made, and everybody got too terrified to try it ever again. <laughs> The Hitchhiker is a wanted killer named Emmett Myers, who has been moving from the Midwest to the Southwest of the United States by killing people, stealing their money in cars, and moving on until he finds out that the latest car is being traced by police. There's national news about his multiple state killing spree as seen in newspapers and heard on the radio. Of course, once he needs a new car, it's time to murder someone else for theirs, at least eventually. The two men who picked him up don't have a gun, well, there's a rifle in the trunk, but when, when the killer sees it, he just says, don't even go for it. The killer in the back seat's too smart and practiced to be easily tricked, not that they don't unsuccessfully try to get away a couple of times. Their worsening situation is intercut with Mexican authorities who start to figure out that Myers is indeed in that area and how they can track down the car he's using without anybody getting killed. To aid in the pursuer's attempts to capture Myers, the two men do things like leave an engraved wedding ring at a gas station pump, hopefully to be spotted by somebody and reported to law enforcement. Once they arrive at the town of Santa Rosalia, Myers swaps clothing with one of his hostages in order to find out if police snipers are waiting for them. If the guy in the leather jacket gets shot, Myers will find out what's what. A stroke of bad luck for the killer occurs here. The regular ferry service he was counting on is shut down for a couple months because the boat has burned down to the waterline. <laughs> he bribes a... Well, I mean, stuff happens whether or not you're planning for it. He bribes a local bartender to find him a fishing boat who will take him to Guaymas across the, the bay and away from the police dragnet. Fortunately for his captives, his picture has been released to newspapers and the locals in Santa Rosalia alert the police. After the switching clothes with the killer trick almost gets one of the hostages shot, Myers is taken into custody and the two friends agree to give an official statement to the Mexican police. Roll credits. So, uh, that's what the movie's about, but why did you pick that one for Fiasco Year 2? Well, uh, I watched it while we were putting together the first season. There was a thing uh, a couple of years ago where people were pointing out how few Hollywood films are made by women these days and that this is nothing to do with ability. It's all to do with, you know, the dumb stick. And, yeah. and uh, so there was the 52 Films by Women Challenge uh, where a bunch of us decided to try to watch 52 w movies uh, in that year that were made by women for whatever definition of made, uh, I guess, that we all individually came up with. Mine was uh, directed or co-directed. Um, okay. Uh, and this is, if you start looking into uh, films directed by women, this one pops up in a lot of the lists. Um, and for very good reason, because it is really damn good. Oh, yes. 
And uh, so, you know, uh, I know that some of our listeners have probably seen it and love it, but uh, to others, they may have never heard of it or, you know, or like me, just not have gotten around to seeing it because there is so much noir out there. <laughs> well, there's so many movies. I mean, dang, there's just thousands and thousands and thousands. So, and yeah. you know, every so often, I, I have to watch Master of the Flying Guillotine again to recharge. <laughs> so yeah, uh, you know, with with all of that in mind, uh, I wanted to make sure that you know, just like I try to make sure that there is. A, an old, you know, at least one older movie, uh, in the lineup. And we're, we tried this year to do a little more diversity in, in thematic content and, and things like that. Uh, I wanted to make sure that there were films by women. So, uh, this one was just, it's one of my favorites. And, uh, I think people will really love it. You could do a double feature with The Hitcher, too, where it's just like, and 35 years later, it's still a really bad idea to let people into your car. You know, there there's something to be said for that, because I, I almost wonder if Rutger Hauer was cast for The Hitcher because of his resemblance to Emmett Myers. Uh, possibly. I think he's just, you know, a big, scary Nordic dude. <laughs> big guy with tussled hair yeah yeah <laughs> looks great in a trench coat so this one can was... be menacing <laughs> so this one was uh i think we both mentioned that it was already that it was ripped from the headlines the general events uh in this uh, as well as the facts about the killer himself are based on the billy cook case um, Billy Cook was a, uh, a young guy who, uh, well, let's just say that, you know, he, he was, uh, a recidivist at a early age, uh, in and out of jails. And, uh, he, in December of 1950, decided to go on a hitchhiking killing spree. Uh, if I could read a little bit out of his Wikipedia entry. Uh, this is under the most interesting section of his short page, which is crimes. On December 30th, 1950, Texan mechanic Lee Archer was driving his car near Lubbock, Texas, when he picked up Billy Cook, who was hitchhiking. Shortly afterward, Cook, ro Cook robbed Archer of $100 at gunpoint and forced him into the trunk of his car. Later, Archer escaped by forcing open the trunk with his tire iron. After the car ran out of fuel between Claremore and Tulsa, Oklahoma, Cook posed again as a hitchhiker. This time, he was picked up by farmer Carl Mosser from Illinois, who was en route to New Mexico with his wife, three children, and a dog. At gunpoint, Cook forced Mosser to drive around aimlessly for 72 hours. At one point, Mosser nearly overpowered Cook at a filling station near Wichita Falls. But Cook was too strong for him. Cook shot the entire family and their dog shortly afterward. He dumped their bodies in a mine shaft near Joplin, Missouri. Uh, so that was the... He, he kidnapped another person later, um... And, uh, you know, went, went a little further. Uh, I think he killed another person along the way, but he was, uh, let me pick up a little later. Uh, all law enforcement agencies throughout the U.S. Southwest were on the lookout for Cook, who had returned to Blythe. He kidnapped two other men, James Burke and Forrest Dameron, who were on a hunting trip. He forced them to drive across the Mexican border to Santa Rosalia, where he was recognized by the Santa Rosalia police chief, who walked up to Cook, snatched the 32 revolver from his belt, and arrested him. Uh, he was then uh, tried, convicted, and executed in 1952. So these are the real facts uh, behind this movie, and it's kind of astonishing how close the movie actually plays with uh, with that timeline of events. 
They, they, uh, of course, being a 50s movie, did not murder children, but the movie starts off with literally a bang. Uh, you see, after a, a brief and frankly hilarious uh, warning against picking up hitch- hitchhikers, uh, you see him walking down the road, you just see his feet, you see a car stop and pick him up, then you see the car pulled to the side of the road. He gets, you see his feet as he gets out. He fires into the car. You see uh, a purse drop to the ground and you see him rifle money out of it. And you see him go through this uh, uh, at least one more time before the main characters, the hunters, uh, in this case, fishermen arrive. And uh, it's, it's, a little, even for noir, it's it's kind of a big body count to rack up before the opening before credits the are done. opening credits or the narrative start. Yeah, it's uh, and and we know less than nothing about the guy. We know he has shoes and a gun, and that's really about it. Yeah, you don't even see him until after he pulls the gun on our our heroes. Our Poor suckers in a really bad situation. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's it's they they went even further in this movie, which it really lends to a creepy touch. The um the real life criminal uh, Billy Cook had a uh, some kind of eye deformity. And the sources, the limited sources I've I've found on this are really unclear about what that means. But it was enough that, um, uh, as the Wikipedia entry says, between that and his belligerent attitude, he was, uh, he was left in the orphanage. Yeah. Um, and they, they play that out in the movie with a kind of prosthetic that they put over, uh, the actor's eye. Uh, William Tallman plays Emmett Myers and, He's got kind of a, it looks like a sleepy eye. Um, but it's really that his, his, his eye is, eyelid is paralyzed and it leads to some incredible moments. Like on their very first night with him, um, you know, camping out in the desert, he, you know, looks over at them and he's like, you won't even know if I'm sleeping or awake. This eye never closes. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh i i also thought that uh that opening you know narration you know don't do this and bad things won't happen to you to me was a very 50s kind of moral and they dropped the moral at the beginning of the movie rather than the end yeah uh, it 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 kind of reminds me there's a woody woodpecker cartoon where uh, a guy walk like an animated man walks in and keeps saying if Woody had gone straight to the police, this never would have happened. All right. And I think this type of prologue for for a suspense movie is the kind of thing they were making fun of. Yeah. You know, the it could be you. It could be the couple next to you. You could let death into your car, which <laughs> which is a way rad way to start your movie, but it's uh it's kind of hitting the audience with the hard sell, especially if they just like they've had their first little handful of popcorn or the first sip of Coke. And it's like someone in this theater will die. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> before the movie's over. One of you will die <laughs> possibly or you won't. I'm not really sure. <laughs> well, but the- yeah, it, it's cranked from the get go. <laughs> Well, sp- speaking of the, the direct kind of, uh, visceral, uh, contact with the audience, I mean, that, that started even with the movie poster. Yeah. Which, which is, you know, a, a shot from, a shot from the, a view from the backseat of the car of, of, uh, Roy and Gilbert in the front and the foreground is the pistol aimed at them. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like, 
Dang. And and the slogan was something like you when was the last time you let death into your car? Yeah, they were um I mean uh, they, and and one can safely assume that since it was like a halfway across the continent murder spree uh that audiences would have known this is what they were talking about like the specific case sort of like how law and order will do an episode and you know what what they're referring to yeah in this case it's an entire movie yeah it's a year after like you know the spree started in as late in 1950 as it could be and and went into yeah. to 51 this came out the next year um or sorry two years later um so it's not like an immediate turnaround but it's but people still would have known about it yeah it's shocking uh, enough that it would still have been in in you know the in the, in the general and, consciousness of people yeah uh, did you ever see a movie called The Sadist? I haven't yet. Nor I, but it looks like it might be at least a partial remake of The Hitchhiker. Uh, he, uh like, The Hitchhiker crossed with the Charles Starkweather spree killings. Oh, dang. Where, where Arch Hall Jr., of all people, is the greasy-haired juvenile delinquent with a gun who kidnaps three teachers... And, uh, you know, will you get out of this alive? Well, it doesn't look good for you. And, and delights in tormenting those authority figures and doing mm. whatever he can, you know, get away with. Uh, Chad Plambeck of the Atomic Weight of Cheese did a review of that that really made me want to see it. And, you know, sooner or later, after I've watched 5,000 other things that are also in the pile, I totally <laughs> need to watch The Sadist. Well, the, the, yeah. <laughs> um, We're both like this, and there's no use denying it. <laughs> yeah, there there are a couple of times in this where, like, I really, I really think that Emmett Myers might be my favorite villain in in American crime movies. Oh, he's wow. certainly up there. He's he's absolutely a finalist for me. And part of that is because he comes off as such a resentful child throughout. Yes. And part of that is, you know, there are a couple of occasions where he moralizes about, you know, how Roy and Gil are, are the ones who are in the wrong because, you know, yeah, they have, they have, uh, more friends and, and <laughs> jobs and, one of them's married with kids and, and it's blood freezing when he says something like, well, uh, do what I tell you. And there's a chance you'll get to see him again. Yes. Yeah. I had a watch like this once when I was 17. Nobody gave it. To me. I took, it. knocked off a broken down jewelry store in a little jerk town outside of Tulsa. It was a cinch. You guys are soft. You know what makes you that way? You're up to your necks in IOUs. You suckers. You're scared to get out on your own. You always said it good, so you're soft. Well, not me. Nobody ever gave me anything. So I don't owe nobody. My folks were tough. When I was born, they took one look at this puss of mine and told me to get lost. I didn't need them. I didn't need any of them. Got what I wanted my own way. And you got the know-how and a few bucks in your pocket. You can buy anything or anybody. Especially if you got him at the point of a gun. That really scares him. You ever been at the other end of a gun? No. And I never will be. Uh, did you ever see The Devil's Rejects? Yes. Yeah, the, uh, 
uh, the scene where one of the fireflies, you know, kidnaps a couple people to go dig up a gun stash plays off like this movie in about eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and with a bummer ending. Well, it's, it's interesting that I, this movie is, you know, as a, as a modern audience for it, you, you have to, to meet it on its terms because, you know, you mentioned Devil's Rejects and that's very visceral. You know, you get, you get some gore, you get a lot of swearing and violence and all kinds of nastiness going on in there. This movie is 1950s chilling. Yeah. And it is, it is supremely 1950s chilling. Like, you know, you don't see the violence. You don't even see the dog being killed. You you just, you hear the shot and the dog stops barking and, you know, you can put two and two together and get square root of 16. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot left to your imagination, but it's also, you know, it's a lot easier for me, I think, uh, nowadays to see a movie like this and because it's so all of the violence is hinted at um, and heard rather than seen, it's actually easier to feel it because oh yeah, it's, it's not something where you can look at it and go, Oh, that effect is terrible or look how they died. That was a, you know, that was a silly tumble or, yeah. you know, oh, bad squib work or, you know, commenting on the blood or any of that. It's all in your mind. And because of that, I think is a lot more powerful. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, the, the story is the story, but the, the directorial touches to make you see what's not on the screen and make you dread what's happening when you can't see it is turning the Hayes production code weaknesses into a strength yes absolutely uh there there's a lot going on here that you know when you when you hear that you know the 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 plot is yeah you're going to sit down and watch a movie that's three guys and one gun in a car uh, yeah that doesn't uh, the, sound very tense or exciting no, not really <laughs> uh but like the first time they cut to the mexican police i was like whoa hey hold on what's going on here you know i i had gotten so used to just in that you know what whatever it was like 35 or 40 minutes of that part of the movie that uh it was just like whoa hey uh, the world is exists it there's other stuff going on yeah because you, you um, get so claustrophobic, it's very claustrophobic while it's with the, with the action, with the main action. Yes. Uh, and then it's, it's tense because, uh, one of the things that Emmett says is, you know, well, uh, you know, if they're looking for three people, then I'm just going to have to kill you both and go on my own way. Cause then they'll be looking for three and I'll just be one. Yeah. And. That, I mean, he's, he's so matter of fact about it. He's so practiced on how to get away from these things that, uh, that in itself is extremely chilling. It's one of the better parts of his performance. And, and the skillful way that the movie makes you constantly worried about the possibility of help. Yes. Like you go from being worried, you know, early on, you're worried for people who like they get a flat tire and you're worried mm -hmm. for the people who, who slow down to see if they need assistance because you're like, no, no, he's going to shoot you. Yeah. Um, but then you're worried because police are narrowing down and, 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 and tracking them and you, you start thinking, but if they do this, then Emmett's going to figure it out and kill them. Yeah, you know, right down. Yeah, to... I mean, he if he figures it's the end of the line anyway, he has literally nothing to lose. Uh, and and it's you know a lot of those you know a lot of those rebellious villain types come off as really cliche or cheesy, but in this movie, it is terrifying. Oh yeah, you know, and and right uh, down to the 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 final moments when you know that the police know where they're headed 
and you know that the one guy is uh, being made. I think it's Roy who's made to look like him. Yeah, they swap. Uh, they swap clothes, and and he says, you know, you walk out front. We'll see if they're looking for a guy in a black leather jacket. And yeah, I mean, you know, you're. It, it's it's amazing how tense this film makes the possibility of help. <laughs> yes. And and that is an extraordinarily subversive thing that maybe Ida Lupino, you know, thought of and brought out in the material because she was a woman and because she was Hispanic. Like, you know, the movie is two white guys realizing they don't have white guy invulnerability. That's a really good point. And in 1953, I mean, there were literally tiers of civil rights that you had if you were a white guy, a, a white woman, a non-white guy or woman, and then maybe, you know, a dog <laughs> uh, or, or a tree. And seeing them, you know, go through all of these stages and seeing them get broken down piece by piece, but they still hang on to at least that core of themselves that no, we're, we're going to work together and we're going to get through it together. If it's one-on-one, he has a gun. If it's two-on-one, we can probably outthink him and figure something out. And that's one of the, you you were talking about, you know, best part of his chilling performance. But for me, I, I think it was when he was chastising them for not turning on each other. Yeah. He was like, you're, you know, you're losers because one of you could have gotten away. Yeah. Yeah, it was a coin toss. One of you would still be alive, but I would have killed the other one. But by that point, the, you know, the one I didn't murder might have made it away. And I, I think it has to be said here that part of what keeps this uh, really suspenseful is the it's a very lean movie. It's 70 minutes long. There's really no time where it slows down or gets bogged down. No, no. It it moves like a sitcom episode. Like in a sitcom, every single line of dialogue is either advance the story, set up for a joke, or punchline. They just don't have time for anything else at 22 minutes. And with this movie, it's the same thing. It's It's only an hour and 10 minutes long, including credits. So they they have to establish the situation, make it worse, make it worse, make it worse, show hope, make that go away, get to the ending, roll credits, where it just they they don't have time for extraneous details. They don't have time for, you know, uh, a band performance in a cantina that drags the whole movie down for three minutes. They just they they don't have any room for any any extraneous stuff in the screenplay or in the film. Yeah. So even something as seemingly like pointless as, and now let's see how they pick up groceries. So many things are served in that scene, including witnesses to put the three of them together. Somebody who saw where the car was from to tell the police to help identify okay yeah it is the missing right. guys um as well as a foiled escape attempt to show how to show some of the character of Roy and Gill where one of them has a box full of cans and he's getting re- poised and ready to throw it at Emmett so that they have a chance to get the gun away from him and just then a little girl walks over to, to where Emmett is. Yeah. And, and, and that's it. We're not giving him an even worse, you know, we're not giving him a six year old girl as a hostage. Yeah. We so, had half a plan and we've got to cut the plan off. So a, a little scene like that has so much tension and serves the plot in so many ways. I mean, it's, it's, ah. Uh, such a good movie. <laughs> I bet the Cohen brothers have seen this movie eight or ten times. <laughs> uh, something I'd like to talk about specifically is how the cinematography works two different ways to do paranoia and isolation. Okay. Uh, when they're in the car, you know, mediocre rear projection aside, I mean, the movie's from 53, this is what you get. Yeah. Uh, and, and for fans of mediocre rear projections... You'll love it. (laughs) 
I am a fan of mediocre <laughs> rear projection in driving scenes. So the, the focus is super tight. It's three guys in a car and it's usually shot sort of towards all three of them through the windshield. So it's three guys in the frame. There's two car, you know, there's two layers of car seats and a man with a gun and that's it. And the roof of the car and the hood of the car block out a little bit of the frame. The sides of the car block out a little bit of a frame. So they're squeezed into a slightly smaller space. Yeah. In almost all of these shots. And then they switch it up for showing the car driving through the desert. And there's just nothing around to the horizon. There's sand and maybe in the distance a mountain some of the time. But it's basically sand a dirt road and rocks. And that's the entirety of what's out there where even if they want, like if they somehow disabled the car and made a run for it, they're in wide open space while a guy has two guns and has proved that he's a very good shot. So both, both times that they're being shown in, in isolation, it's a noir movie that doesn't have the city, like the city that mm-hmm. every noir takes place in. Instead, it's out in, you know, California and Mexican desert or in a car. But that isolation and paranoia and pressure is there just as much as any noir that takes place in the city. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, instead of feeling like every all eyes are on you, it's no one can see us to help us. No right. one and, knows. And even here. if they do... Uh, it could go really badly for everybody. I want to touch on that um, again because, uh, you know, this is a noir. And uh, like you said, it's a daylight noir, which is not rare, but not the, the common approach. And, oh, man, just, just, I, I never knew the desert could look so gorgeous in black and white. Um <laughs> But, uh, uh, yeah, this was like John Ford Monument Valley level scenery. One of the, one of the things in, one, one of the things you see in a lot of noir is the good person who makes the bad choice. And you could say to yourselves, oh, yeah, well, they picked up a hitchhiker. That's a bad choice. That's not, that's not their noir sin. They screw themselves. Very early on, we get this short uh, sequence of, of scenes with them where they decide not to go where they told everyone they were going and instead head to Mexico to go fishing. And it's that decision that puts that the, puts them on the road to pick up the hitchhiker as well as once they've been uh captured by him no one knows where they are no one expects to be looking for them down there they're not even connected to Emmett and his his reign of terror because they're not supposed to be in that area right and and at one point there's even a news bulletin that says like there were reports of him showing up in Chicago and Detroit as well as in California yeah so <laughs> people are panicking and calling in everybody driving a car, uh, <laughs> which you're going to get. I thought that was extraordinarily realistic. Yeah. The other nice touch I thought was that the, uh, was the, the language in the film. Uh, yes. when, whenever someone, um, uh, on the Mexican side of the border speaks English, it is a deliberate choice on the character's part. It's not a, here we are speaking English for the convenience of the American audience. Uh, So there are scenes where nobody says anything in English and that's cool. because It's left untranslated too. There's no subtitles. Yeah. And you... It's just a bunch of dudes who would ordinarily be speaking Spanish speaking Spanish. And you don't need it. I mean, it's not like they're giving, you know, Shakespearean recitations. They're, they're communicating stuff that we, the audience already know. And you can piece together, oh, that's the person who saw them. And those are police. 
Yeah. I wonder what they're saying. You know? <laughs> yeah. It, it, in a way, it's a little like in a silent movie where you don't get the intertitles for every single sentence that is spoken. You get context through the facial expression and body language of what is being said. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, so, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, uh, I did get a film studies degree at Eastern Michigan University. Uh, one of the, the moments that combines, uh, a lot of what's, what, what's really works in this movie, uh, it, it's probably my favorite single scene in the movie, which is kind of a, I mean, it's a tough call, but yeah, this stands out to me so much is, uh, one of the first stops they make after Emmett has taken them hostage. He, you know, he gets them out of the car. He makes them, he decides he wants to show them what a bad he is in case they, they get ideas of escape. And he has, I always get the two guys. I'll just say he has one of the guys because I could not keep their names straight. Well, well, I know their names, but I don't, I can't match them to the people. Uh, you know, there's, there's Roy and Gil. One of them was an army guy. One of them was not. I don't know. They're, they're yeah. both. It, it reminded me a little of Destination Moon where I literally could not tell which of the two black haired white dudes of same, of similar height was which character. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Uh, so he has one of them, uh, go and, uh, put a can on a rock and he shoots it, uh, with his, with his pistol. And, um, then, he gives, you know, some other stuff happens with all of this, and he he winds up giving the other guy, the army guy, a, the rifle while keeping the pistol trained on him. <laughs> yeah, because uh, he's not dumb; he's just crazy. <laughs> and hand, hands him the rifle, makes makes his friend hold the can, yeah, and makes the guy at at pain of death, shoot the can out of his friend's hand. Which is a terrifying concept in and of itself. And then these f***ers, they, they attach the rifle to the bottom of the camera. So you get this shot of the rifle, you know, a, a, a point of view shot of aiming down the rifle at the friend. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God. <laughs> it's a little flashy. It's a little showy, but damn if it doesn't work. Oh yeah. Yeah. It, it's, uh, and especially for it being one of the only times they really do a, a camera trick like that. It, it really stands out. And most of the time, you know, it's, it's making you think, oh man. I'd hate to be in that situation. Oh, geez, I'd hate to be in these guys' shoes. And then it shows you exactly what it would look like yeah. in that situation. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been target shooting a couple of times with a 22 pistol. I'm like a C plus or B minus shot with it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if I had to hit an actual target like that while the adrenaline was pumping. <laughs> yeah. I, I would probably just, aim badly off to the side you know and hope for the best uh what one one other thing since we had uh adam clark on last week our last episode uh i i had soundtracks are therefore on my mind um i was paying attention to the score this time and of course you know there are things that it does to try to to make it more exciting when you're seeing something like and then the car turns and keeps going down a, a dusty road you know so you get like bombastic trumpets and and oh you know, yeah stuff yeah. like that the uh the universal studios monster brass basically yeah. uh but it also knows when to not get in the way of the natural tension of a scene uh, and I, I was, I was, I paid a lot of attention to that where the, where like 
the soundtrack would, the score would either vanish completely during tense moments, or you'd get like during the, the, the brief picnic scene, you, mm-hmm. you, you had, they had this, uh, kind of, um, you know, just nice little melody played on, on guitar that was just kind of this, you know, kind of this pleasant little thing because it's like, here's a moment that doesn't entirely suck. And then it turns to suck again. And, yeah. <laughs> and but, it's no I mean, longer you, the, the jaunty tune, but <laughs> you need those little palate cleansers and you, and I wasn't honestly paying that much attention to the score. Uh, this was the first time I'd seen the movie. So I, I was just basically, you know, absorbing the movie and it's, uh, I just sort of expect all the fifties movies to have a melodramatic and bombastic <laughs> yeah. score. I just sort of think that's going to happen anyway. Bum, bum, so, bum, bum, bum. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I love brass and I love fifties yeah. movies. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's one more thing that helps nail it down to that time and place. You know, some people say, oh, I didn't like that movie because it was dated. And you and I tend to think, I like that movie exactly because of how it was dated. Yeah. You know, um, you could see how they were doing things at this point. And, and really, you know, that it's sort of like what I'm finding with, um, with getting, getting as into silent films as I have. I have a lot more respect for an understanding of, the early talkies and some of the things that we perceive as flaws in those big, um, like last night, uh, well, after I watched this and was surprised all over again at how short it was, I popped in, uh, the 31 Dracula. Oh, and I used to despise that movie, um, because it's so ponderous and hardly anything really happens. And, you know, it's not what I wanted in a vampire movie. And watching it again with a deeper understanding from having seen more things from just before and uh, contemporaneous, I still think Vampire is the better film, uh, is the better vampire film from 31. But I like Dracula a lot more than I ever did because I'm recognizing some of the acting styles. I'm noticing some of the elaborate, uh, scenery, uh, that they're using. I understand more that, you know, the, the dialogue is kind of delivered in a, I will state my line, pause. I will state my line in response kind of manner. But a lot of them at the time were doing that because they were still getting used to sound and weren't quite clear on how fast they could be with the technology at the time for the audiences to be able to hear and understand everything. Oh, yeah. And I know I've mentioned this a couple times before on the podcast, but here it is again. There's an early Marx Brothers talkie where all the newspapers and maps and things are soaking wet. And it's so they don't turn a page and obliterate all of the other things going on in the scene. Yeah. See, if only uh, they'd and, been Italian. They Well, there you go. They could have just ADR'd that. <laughs> I And I don't know if this is true, and I'm sure I mentioned it on the podcast earlier, but supposedly the big national Italian film studio happened to be located near an airport, which wasn't a problem until sound film. Yeah. And then everything had to be dubbed anyway. <laughs> to me, this is one of the, the great noirs. There's a, a lot of, like, you could find as many people as you want who have utterly different notions of how long the original noir period was and how you can subcategorize it. But I tend to think of 53 as about mid-period noir. Okay. You know, it was, it had been going on long enough that they were doing things to break out of the mold, uh, like this one going outside of the city and filming during daylight. And, you know, there were, there were others. 
I, I forget what year it was, but Gun Crazy is another one that's a daylight noir where it's, you know, a guy from a carnival, basically a trick shot from a carnival gets roped into a life of crime um, by, by his girlfriend. And, uh, you know, that's all, you know, quiet cities and, you know, quiet small towns and, uh, you know, big open areas and bright shining sun. Um, and it's noir as f- <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the IMDb puts that at 1950. Okay. And and uh, a couple of years after the Hitchhiker, one of my favorite daylight noir. Well, I mean, I've I've now seen maybe three daylight noirs. So, <laughs> so still, it's really good. Uh, Bad Day at Black Rock from 1955 is bl- blinding sunlight for pretty much the entire movie, and it's in this tiny little map spec town where. The train that goes by, you know, two or three times a day hasn't stopped there in four years. And like the only time anyone gets a hotel, a room at the hotel that's like one of the three businesses there is when there's like ranchers with herds of cattle that they're, they're loading onto stock cars and selling to, you know, a meat packing plant. And that, that's not just, uh, daytime noir. That's, that's full color. Cinemascope widescreen. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous. Uh, it I would, is. I would not be surprised if we, uh, if we cover that one. I, it's going to be one of those movies where like Return of the Living Dead, where it was like, well, it turns out you got to this first. <laughs> At some point, one of us is going to put that into the hopper. <laughs> and that's just how it's going to be. And that's okay. And now, since nobody wants to hear about me at B-Fest, let's go on and do one of our regular segments, Film Clips, where we will tell the audience several little bits of information about the film or the, the circumstances of making it that didn't necessarily fit into the broad strokes of the commentary and description we were doing earlier. Ida Lupino was still working as an actress in film and television as late as 1978, her later years movie of interest to B-movie fans include The Devil's Reign and Bert I. Gordon's Food of the Gods, which was also at B-Fest. As well as a quite nifty Twilight Zone appearance where she played a silent movie actress who disappears into her film. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> the original story for the film came from blacklisted screenwriter Daniel Mainwary, who did not receive screen credit in the movie. William Tallman, who played villain Emmett Myers in the film, was recognized while out driving and slapped by a fellow driver who hated him from the movie. (laughs) Tallman claimed this was the closest he ever got to an Academy Award. (laughs) Billy Cook, the spree killer the film's villain is based on, was executed in the gas chamber at San Quentin State Prison in December of 1952. This was six months after the film went into production, but three months before the film's premiere. Ida Lupino's husband at the time, Collier Young, has an uncredited cameo as a Mexican peasant. Ida Lupino interviewed the two real-life hostages and Billy Cook, getting all three of them to sign releases so details from their lives could be used in the film. This was the first fast-paced thriller that Lupino directed. Her first four movies were all issues-oriented, so-called women's pictures. Due to the Hayes production code influencing the film, there are fewer murders in the movie than in the real killing spree that inspired it. This film holds 12 out of 12 positive reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, making it 100% fresh by their rating system. Two different working titles for the film during production were The Persuader and The Difference. I I can't imagine The Difference having when was the last time you let death into your car as a tagline. Yeah, even her film The Bigamist had a better title than that. (laughs) Yeah. And finally, uh, this movie is in the public domain, so if you're looking for a copy, try to find one released on disc after its January 2014 remastering and re-release. So if you're interested in seeing The Hitchhiker, it should be readily available. It's been uh, re-released uh, on a pretty nifty 
disc by uh, Kino Lorber very recently. So you should be able to score it at a library or uh, even purchase a copy. And please do. Uh, I love Kino Lorber and uh, I want them to have money to keep releasing awesome things. Yeah, but you kind of single-handedly do that. I, yes, I am their friend. Their friend who <laughs> pays them lots. <laughs> and that's cool. Uh, if they get enough money, hopefully they can clear the music rights for The Legend of Hillbilly John. Oh, man, that would be nice. They've been promising it for about two and a half years. Uh, unfortunately, they have not been delivering it. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. As usual, we asked our audience a question. Fiasco friends, please recommend a movie in which one or more main characters are hostages. And then we warned them that we might use their answer in an episode. Our calls may be monitored for quality assurance. <laughs> uh, Eric J. Peterson says, Toy soldiers, aging 80s teen actors have terrorists take over their boarding school and 1991 action ensues. <laughs> I remember kind of digging that one. I, I didn't see it in the theaters, but I saw it relatively soon when it came out on video, if I'm remembering right. And it was it was not bad. Uh, Tim Geralami, as though reading my mind, says, <laughs> Lupino's The Hitchhiker. Many good people taken hostage by dirtbags movie drives drive me nuts, but she avoids many of the worst cliches, and the film is an interesting exercise in frustrated 50s masculinity. If you want one that embraces many of those cliches but has a killer twist ending, let me recommend Bava's Rabid Dogs. I shall forever remember my father's bitter complaining about the film until that twist, followed by his loving it thereafter. Rabid Dogs. Oh, yeah. I'll... I'll We'll be circling back on this one. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, Joel Ruggerberg gives us Superman 2 and a quote, If he is so fond of these humans, let us take his favorite from Ursa the Villainous. <laughs> and that works out real well for everybody. <laughs> Chris Gumpridge also wanted to say The Hitchhiker, uh, but of course, Tim G had taken it. Uh, so he gives us another one. Dog Day Afternoon, which he finally saw last year. That's a yeah. That's a good one. That's I'm I'm totally fronting. I'm just gonna go, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Oh man, it's really good. I don't doubt it. Actually, Chris Sarandon's in it in one of his first roles, isn't he? Yeah, as is a little person I like to call Lance Hendrickson. Oh wow. Brief part, but significant. But but hopefully cool. I mean, it's Lance Hen Lance Hendrickson, so it's got to be good. Yeah. Uh, Jason Bollinger of Attack of the Killer podcast says, "I'm a huge fan of Suicide Kings." I have never heard of Suicide Kings. I've heard of it, but haven't seen it yet. Ah. Uh, Lauren Gillespie adds Mickey Rourke and crew in Fall Time. I've, I've heard, heard of Mickey of Rourke. I... Yeah, he's he's quite good. Um, uh, he does a very interesting performance in a a sort of action movie that's not meant to make you happy called Blunt Force Trauma. <laughs> I've heard of that uh, one. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like hard times if people were shooting each other in the Kevlar as a way to prove machismo. <laughs> Uh, he goes on to say, uh, Laura Palmer, va vampire hostage in Vampires. Dale Arden uh, and Flash and Zarkov are taken hostage repeatedly in Flash Gordon. And of course, I love Flash Gordon more than, than pancakes. So 
Yeah. Great, great flick. <laughs> and yes, they do get captured a lot, don't they? Yeah, they're like uh, the doctor. <laughs> they're like Tarkin. <laughs> no, they don't have a, they don't have any dogs named Kurt. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, that means they have no invincibility whatsoever. Brian Clark says, if you think about it, Ed Wood was a hostage of his transvestism <laughs> in a time when, okay, I'm kidding. I'm not going to use that as an answer again. I think I'll go with Eduardo Sanchez's 2006 reverse alien abduction flick, Altered. A group of abductees who have since been freed managed to trap one of their former captors, and things go very badly for all involved. I I I I have a dim memory of it being a review associated with Huber Sween, uh, and and reading it and going, okay, I need to see this, and then like almost everything that enters my brain, it immediately fell out. So <laughs> maybe this time I will yeah. I will actually get around to it. <laughs> We've all been there and we'll be there again. <laughs> Dave Thomas tells us, surely it has to be the 80sist of all the giant white Republican wet dream hero kills all the brown people movies. Commando. Arnold <laughs> Schwarzenegger puns and murders his way to save his daughter Alyssa Milano while the soundtrack has a seizure in his steel drum store. Commando. <laughs> you haven't seen Commando? I, I was on a, uh, I think I've mentioned this before. I, I went through a real, like, lash, you know, backlash against, uh, action movies phase. So uh, I, I still have a lot of catching up to do. <laughs> it's one of the more berserk of the weightlifter with a machine gun or movies. And, uh, yeah, the steel drum score. I mean, I remember thinking, so what the heck? But remember the, the previous, uh, well, not the previous one we've covered, but a few episodes back, we did Brother from Another Planet, also with a steel drum score. And there's a non-zero chance that the makers of Commando said, yeah, like that movie with the mute alien who learns how to be human. <laughs> because honestly, who's the least Caribbean weightlifter with a machine gun you could name? It's Arnie. <laughs> But Dave was not done with either us or the action genre. Oh. See also Street Fighter, he continues. The classic, where Van Damme and an ethnically questionable group of martial artists have to save some UN types from Raul Julia. The kind of film where the producer's commitment to accuracy extends only as far as, we heard there was this game and it was called Street Fighter. They also showed that at B-Fest, and it played, it, it went over like gangbusters. <laughs> yeah, that's a perfect B-Fest movie. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> and don't forget, there was also a, a arcade game where they used digitized footage of the actors and actresses from Street Fighter to ba basically make Street Fighter the game of the movie of the game. <laughs> it also means you can select Raul Julia and kick the crap out of people. <laughs> oh. So, what's your choice, Tim? For Well, it's it's one of many, many, many plot points in this movie, but in The Gods Must Be Crazy, there is a, a South African revolutionary named Sam Boha who kidnaps a class full of students and force marches them around as a human shield as he tries to get from one part of the country to another. And the school teacher of that class is the very pretty lady that our hero had been trying to impress and only came across like a complete goon. So resolving the hostage situation is a way for him to show that he is an effective human being and not a total mess at everything. And of course, it works out perfectly and then someone else takes the credit for it. Of course. Well, I mean, it's a comedy. It can't end with the, the schmuck completely on top. But it does all work out well in the end. And I also remember uh, Sam Boha getting angrier and angrier that the kids are marching in a square instead of a circle until he just decides the hell with it. We're marching in a square. <laughs> awesome. How about you? Uh, do you have something where there is a hostage situation other than the one we've just spent about an hour talking about? Uh, yeah, as it happens, 
<laughs> Tim Gerolami mentioned it. Uh, <laughs> Our 19- mind reader. <laughs> yes. Uh, 1974's Rabid Dogs, also uh, known under uh, from a variant print as Kidnapped. Okay. What's it about? It's about a kidnapping. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's a movie about some, uh, criminals on a, the run who kidnap some people, uh, at gunpoint and take them in a car. And there's a lot of driving and tension. And <laughs> <laughs> you, you see why I seen this movie? You, you see why I thought of it, but, uh, yes. Yeah, this is the nasty version of Kidnapped, uh, oh. or of the Hitchhiker. Um, it's um, <laughs> it's a a a heist gone wrong, and uh, they murder some people on their way to to even get the car, but they wind up with, I believe it's uh, it, it's been a couple of years since I've seen it, so I don't remember precisely who and what and where but among the people kidnapped are the uh the person who owns the car um who of course one of the the goons kind of lusts over throughout it's a movie with george eastman in it so it's not exactly oh. tasteful um oh, and, dear. and uh uh there's also uh, a guy with uh, a small child who's feverish and you know desperately wants to he desperately wants to get the kid to a hospital and everything constantly goes wrong. And there's lots of scenes of people trying to different ways to escape. And um, Tim was not kidding when he says that the end changes the entire movie. It's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, it's not what I would call Mario Bava's best film. But given that a lot of it was uncredited Lumberto Bava, I will say uh, that it is Lumberto Bava's best film. <laughs> I can dig it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like, it is not an easy film to stomach. I mean, this is, this is up there near things like Last House on the Left and, oh, wow. and that kind of thing in terms of it is extremely uncomfortable. To, to watch parts of this movie um, but if you if, if it's the kind of thing that you think you can stomach it is a hell of a ride well I, I guess I will be testing my machismo with it as soon as I get a chance <laughs> <sighs> with that uh, we should probably check in with the randomizer yeah it's been a little while uh, alright randomizer uh, we've done, what, three movies of Sean's in a row? Let's go for four. <laughs> By totally random selection. Ah, oh, damn it. My What's run up? is at an end. <laughs> on the, on the um, plus side... Well, what are we watching next? Well, on the plus side, we get a sledgehammer fight. Oh, oh! Well, that means this one has a, a kidnapping and some driving in it too, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. Also, it has streets of fire. Oh, yeah, yeah. This one's come up a couple times uh, already. I don't remember if it ever did in a, a main episode, but I know we talked about it in in our our tribute to Bill Paxton. And oh, it's, certainly. It's it has to have come up at least one more time, <laughs> probably more, somewhere in there, someplace. <laughs> yes, yes, it probably did. The movie in search of a lead actor. <laughs> yeah, it it's sort of an early dry run for the Untouchables, another movie where the lead is the biggest problem and the biggest sucking charisma void at the center of a fascinating film. <laughs> so you'll have that to look forward to in another two weeks. <laughs> Until then. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fiasco Brothers Watch a Movie. If you like our podcast, please tell your movie fan friends about us however you can. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, 
and at thepfpn.com. And you can reach the Fiasco Brothers themselves on facebook.com slash podcast and on Twitter as at Fiasco Brothers. If you enjoy the show, please consider donating to our Patreon for a dollar a month to get exclusive mini-episodes. Also on our Patreon page for free, totally boss discussions cut from the existing episodes, and our 26-film mini-marathon of Hubris Ween, where we cover horror movies literally from A to Z. That's at patreon.com slash fiascobrothers. We'll see you again in two weeks on our next episode. And again, thank you for listening. It's been a while. It's been a while. I missed that. <laughs> I, I'm sure EMU would be willing to subsidize this podcast if I would stop doing that. But I'm having too much fun with it, so I'm not gonna. Ha, 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 ha.